Welcome to Playing Footsie, the podcast where we talk about stocks, investing and personal finance. Before we start, we want to make it clear that the information presented on this show is for informational and entertainment purposes only. None of us is a financial advisor and this is not financial advice. Investing in the stock market comes with risks and we strongly encourage our listeners to do their own research and consult with a licensed financial advisor before making any investment decisions. Now, let's dive into the world of finance and talk about what we're doing with our money. The sucker's going up. Welcome to the Playing Footsie Show. I'm Steve W. It's our first proper show of 2024. The first week for the stock market is in and also in is Steve D to talk about it with me. Uh, how are you, Steve? How's your first week of January been? And what's the big news from this show? Hey, Steve. Um, so a little bit of housekeeping just before we get rolling off. Um, we've uh, we've quite long had a problem with uh, YouTube not really recognizing the difference between our highlights videos and, and our normal videos. But we kind of need them both together to get enough revenue to make this show like a viable thing. Um, and we've uh, we've come to the decision anyway that we're going to split the uh, main uh, show up into little highlight reels for YouTube only. So the main show and video will still go on Spotify, still be on Apple, still be on Google. Uh, so you'll be able to watch the full show uh, on a Sunday release as you would normally. But we're going to continue with the highlights on the main YouTube channel for now uh, and just give that a test to see how that goes. So we're sorry if we inconvenience anybody with that. Um, but realistically, it's just one of the ways we need to sort of drive. Basically, we've got about 500, 600 pound bill coming soon. And uh, at the moment, the show doesn't make anywhere near enough money to uh, to pay that kind of bill. So we're going to try something new and hopefully it works out for us. And uh, I mean, if it's if it's really, really egregious for you and you really dislike it, um, please let us know in the comments section and uh, we'll have to figure out another way around it. But at the moment, this is the best idea we've got. So uh, we're going to keep uh, splitting it up uh, on YouTube. And like I say, if you do want to consume the full show, it will still be on Spotify, Apple, and uh, on Google, and, and all podcast providers. And if it's if you've got a preferred one uh, that you use and it isn't on, on there, let us know and we'll get it on there for you. Um, so in terms of portfolio, Steve, uh, it's been a bad week, really. I'm down about 3%. Uh, I've got only three stocks that are in the green. And, and I say three uh bloomsbury is one of them i think it's not point not one uh so when I'm, I'm taking it i'm definitely taking it um it's not been a, a very good week for the markets either Steve. not a very good start to january i've seen the panic already setting in on the trading two on two community uh, it was on day two people were already calling it a correction despite the s&p being down about half a percent um so yeah uh not a good start steve but um feeling all right how about you steve i know you're not feeling too well uh, yeah, I'm the opposite way around to you, to be honest. I'm not feeling too well. I was under the weather last night. Um, not entirely sure what it was, but something has not agreed with my digestive system uh, that I ate probably yesterday evening. Uh, and I'm finding out, um, I don't know if I'm finding out the hard way what it was, but I'm, I'm going through the consequences of it right now. Unlike you, though, and unlike the broader market, I think your, your down a bit is um, sort of reflective of what we've... Um, seen in the broader market since the start of the year i'm actually up a half of one percent which is sort of almost nothing and probably about similar to the rate it's been inflated away but up is up and i'll take it because uh, i try and tend to be fair with my scoring when things aren't going terribly well so i'll try and be fair with them when they're going uh, the other way up a half a percent uh this week for me i've also been seeing a lot of noise around um, people. Suddenly this year isn't going the way everyone thought it was going to. Uh, certainly there were a lot of bullish predictions back in December. And maybe, maybe some stuff to taper around April uh, in some cases I was reading about. We'll come back to this in a little bit, actually. We've got some uh, thoughts about where where opportunities might be and um, where, well, how things are likely to go for different sectors, uh, I guess, in 2024. But but this wasn't really in the script, uh, to be honest. Everyone was feeling pretty good after Christmas, and suddenly it, they feel like they've come crashing down to earth with a bump. I'm not sure it's a, a super massive bump that I'm uh, seeing here. I mean, stuff has, uh, in my case, stuff has mostly gone the other way because I'm up slightly, but I've not been seeing the kind of huge dip buying opportunities just yet, uh, I think. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not seeing particularly anything that I'm excited to go and, um, and purchase at a, a, a rapid rate at the moment. I've got about 3K in cash, which is about 3% of the portfolio. So um, I'm 
just sat on it at the moment. I'm waiting for this uh, new four, um, four and a bit percent uh, interest rates coming on trading two on two. And quite happy to sit there just letting that accumulate uh, in the short term. And then we'll, um, we'll, we'll see where we go from there. I actually managed to miss a deposit this month because, uh, basically because of paternity pay and because uh, babies are really expensive. I haven't actually put any money in this uh, in, in December at all. So uh, I've got a bit of a, a stored up cash pile ready to go uh, in January. So that, that, that pile of cash is getting, uh, is going to get bigger. Um, there are things I like. There's three stocks that are on my radar at the moment that I've probably talked to people about in the next few weeks. Um, but um, nothing is just at that price where you're thinking like, well, you know, stop researching, start buying. Um, you know, I, I feel like there's a lot of time still for me to, to just have a quick look around, even though I am bullish for, for, for this year uh, overall in the S&P. How about you, Steve? Um. Similarish, I think. I think there's enough stuff that I have a, a close enough eye on that I'm um, in the process of starting to to buy. Um, when there's nothing that's kind of really screwed up, the things I really want to buy, uh, I think, uh, are not quite there just yet. There's a couple of things I've been looking at recently where I thought, oh, I think kind of, certainly I was previously underestimating this thing because I found out something about it in the last uh, few weeks that's caused me to think, actually, that's that's brighter than I realized. I'm going to go back and reset what I was thinking about this. Um, I haven't quite got to the buying stage with them yet. So they're kind of better than I thought they were, but they're maybe not quite at the at the level where I want to do something just yet. Um, but when there's nothing to go buying, I guess this is what we do is we consume stuff. Uh, we, or when there's nothing obvious to go buying, we go about consuming things. And uh, I've been looking at a website this time is what I've got with my consumption thing. It's called Market Screener. Uh, it's quite nice in a number of ways. It gives you quite good info about companies in ways that's pretty easy to understand. You can get a lot of the same info in a lot of places. So QuickFS is very good. Yahoo Finance is pretty good. Um, lots of others are, are similarish and decent as well. Market Screener gives you some things that I find more helpful than uh, some of the others. So for various companies, it gives you things like quite good revenue breakdowns. And, and I know a lot of places do that. But the nice thing about Market Screener is at least for the first few you have a look at, you don't have to pay for it. So my I kind of really got going on this one. It was helpful to me towards the end of last year. Steve and I were talking about a company called Anglo American, which had been going through the floor. I think it probably finished the year as the FTSE 100's worst performing stock. It was certainly down there. They've had a bunch of issues uh, going on. I was trying to work out whether I think this is too cheap and whether it's worth a look and whether there's opportunity here and so on and so forth. And I was trying to get a breakdown for sort of how much stuff they uh, produce. And if you look at their kind of reports, you can work this out. But they are very keen to talk up, as any mining company would be and should be, their exposure to stuff like copper and nickel and uh, renewable energy metals and, and so on and so forth. Um, but when you look at them a bit more closely, you find, as Steve sort of pointed out to me, and this is where I went to go digging to find this stuff quite nicely presented, that actually they are quite heavily exposed to platinum, uh, which is where they um, get a lot, a lot of their revenue from. And the main use for platinum is internal combustion engine uh, vehicles. So while they talk a decent game and present a decent game and no doubt sincerely kind of mean a decent game about shifting to a kind of uh, renewables based portfolio, uh, there's still a sort of fairly heavy platinum exposure and I need to find a way to work out what happens as, as the only thing about the energy transition as far as I can tell, or maybe the most certain thing about the energy transition as far as I can tell that is I'd be prepared to bet really does take hold is the rise of electric vehicles. One way or another, that bit appears to be happening, whether we talk about kind of closing down all of um, fossil fuel production and so on and so forth for generation. That's another question. But EVs seem like they seem like a thing. So market screener, I think, is good. It has nice charts. It has nice graphs. Um, I think you probably have to either sign up or pay for it to use the proper version, which I haven't yet. But I do like it quite a lot in terms of a place to go finding data. Um, Steve, what have you been consuming? Uh, so I've consumed, uh, well, it's about, we'll go back to the well, Steve, back to the Morgan Housel podcast. Um, so late December, he released a, a uh -huh. really short episode, just about eight minutes long, and it was called Respect Each Other's Delusions. And it, uh, it comes from uh, a saying that he was once um, told by... Um, 
Will and Ariel Durant's The Lessons of History. And it's just a little passage that he basically built a little podcast around, which was, uh, learn enough from history to bear reality patiently and respect one another's delusions. And it's a really interesting little passage just on that uh, on that thought, really. He, he builds upon that uh, and basically explains that even through all of your intentions, uh, you, you know, everybody interprets the world slightly differently and thus becomes slightly deluded that their view of the world is, is pretty much the, uh, the only view that matters, I guess. Uh, and, and he just, just shapes that point a little bit more to, to start to think about uh, everybody you meet is deluded in some way. And so are you and, uh, that we should respect each other's delusions. It's a really interesting little thought piece, just a quick eight minute, uh, I think it's about, it might be just nine minute piece, but it's uh, but it's really interesting. He gives you three reasons at the end of it where you're um, we're all deluded and why we become deluded, and because uh, it's quite a derogatory term, deluded. I think it's quite a word that you thought with a bit of malice, but actually it makes a lot of sense in this context. So uh, yeah, recommend it. Um, like I say, you'll shoot through it, um, uh, uh, and I think you'll probably get quite a bit out of it, like I did. Have you tried that one, Steve? I haven't yet. It's quite a nice way to think about sort of delusions, though, right? I mean, you can spend, you can, I guess, spend your life trying to do one of two things when it comes to um, delusions or or uh, biases, I suppose, another word for the same thing that you that you might have. You can either uh, try and work out how to correct them, and that might be extremely hard or even impossible, right? Because it's you arguably only ever replace one set with another set, and if they're all delusions and they're all biases, well. Uh, what sense of improvement do we have if we just trade one lot for another lot, I guess is the question. If we, or alternatively, I guess we can sort of learn to live with these things and, and just say, look, this is how I see the world. This is how I think about things. This is what makes sense to me. Um, other people may well feel differently. It doesn't make them any worse or any more wrong or anything like that. But I think an important part of respecting your delusions is maybe sticking with your or sticking true to the thought that no, these really are the way you think about things, deluded or otherwise. This is your psychology, your mindset, the way you see the world. And we see that a lot in investing, right? If you um, try and invest like Warren Buffett or in a kind of Warren Buffett style and you don't have the patience of Warren Buffett or the understanding of Warren Buffett, you go wrong. I mean, the best thing to do is to invest in whatever way makes sense to you. If that's a style that doesn't fit with either what I think or what Steve thinks, it doesn't matter. It might still be the right style for you. You won't do so well, uh, certainly trying to invest like someone else when you aren't that person and um, don't think like that person seems to be uh, kind of making extra work for yourself here. So, yeah, respecting delusions, I guess, including your own, but recognizing them as delusions is... I think that's a really bit an interesting bit of investing psychology there, um, Steve, which is unsurprising for a Morgan Housel thing, right? Yeah, this is exactly what Morgan Housel's built his whole career on, pointing out his like, little uh, investing psychology flaws that we all carry in, and uh, not how really how to correct them, but to be aware of them. I think being aware of them is sort of the first step in correcting uh, things like this. But, I mean, we see it all the time, Steve. That we see people who um, on Instagram will post up their pictures and this is the only way to invest and this is the uh you know every other way of investing is the wrong way to invest and um what we've always said to each other steve is that i'm sure when we're uh 80 um years old and we're, we're sat in our mansions uh you know drinking champagne we'll think if only we did it the correct way buying companies with a mm. PE of six and uh um yeah i'm sure that's something we'll uh, we'll we'll definitely think about then um yes. anything on that steve before yeah. we move on no let's let's use that to move on though uh steve i guess one of the stocks i was going to talk about today speaks a lot to this idea of struggling to get past psychology and things that you realize make no psychological sense or psychological things that we do that make no sense uh i'll kick us off with rolls royce so rolls royce is a stock that i have stayed well away from for the last uh, well since i've been investing uh pretty much since during the pandemic and in the short term that proved to be a very good idea and in the long term that has probably cost me money the thing is up 188 percent over the last 12 months which makes it the best FTSE 100 performing stock out of the lot of them um, and here's the thing, and the reason I'm interested in mentioning it now, uh, a lot of people, by the way, were faster to me than me to this party. They looked at it during the pandemic and thought, ah, that's going to come back again when it kind of finishes, aren't they? And I think I think maybe they got a bit luckier than they realized in some cases, but nonetheless, fair play to them. They've done really well here. Here's the thing. 
Bank of America, uh, I was reading this week, is saying it might still be cheap. And having looked at some of the stuff around it, I'm not sure they're crazy. There is obviously a big, big psychological headwind that you have to try and get past if you're going to buy something that's just gone up 188% in 12 months. And if you scroll back to the kind of depth of the pandemic, you get to a number that begins with a six and it has three figures for the amount that you're up. So if you didn't buy it then, why are you going to buy it now? Well, one answer might be um, it makes more sense now. Uh, there are a few things that are kind of out the way that are um, risks and issues and so on that the company's actually made its way past quite nicely. So since the pandemic, what we've seen is flight volumes have pretty much come back. Rolls-Royce basically makes engines and pretty much gives them away and then makes money by servicing them. Servicing revenue is very, very high margin. That more than offsets the cost of giving away the engines and allows them to make money over the top of it. Um, Engine servicing happens on a per, uh, well, per mile usually basis. So every time an engine flies a certain number of miles, it needs servicing. Rolls-Royce send people out to do it, charge companies for the privilege. And uh, these servicing contracts are built into the kind of dispatch of the, or, or come with the dispatch of the engine uh, here. So a couple of things that have been happening since then. Flight volumes coming back to pretty much pre-pandemic levels is very helpful. And they've also been renegotiating on price for some of these, which has meant that they're getting better prices for their contracts and they're improving their margins. Both of these things will be significant later on. That's all happened uh, so far. So that's why the stock is kind of where it is. That's arguably priced in, although maybe we'll come back to suggest it actually isn't. The things that might help it going forward, though, are some big balance sheet improvements. So their free cash flow generation is causing their credit rating to rise. Rolls-Royce has quite a lot of debt uh, at the moment. Even after the pand pandemic, it's entirely understandable that debt went up, share count went up, uh, do everything you can to try and survive in what is clearly a very difficult situation for engine manufacturers. Not their fault, but nonetheless, that doesn't really help them in any way, saying it's not their fault. Uh, so at the moment, they're in a situation where of their operating income, about 39% of that goes on paying interest on their debt. And that's just the interest. That's not actually paying anything down. But yeah, pre-tax profits, 39% goes away on interest, which makes the margins come out quite tight here. But with free cash flow improving, they're finding their credit rating is ticking up. And as their credit rating ticks up, it means they can issue bonds at better rates and they can probably bring down their cost of debt a fair bit. Um, on top of that, it does look like, uh, I think people are overestimating the chances of this, but I'm certainly not saying it won't happen. Interest rates might come down uh, this year. I think people think they'll come down sooner than they will. But if interest rates do come down, that's also a benefit for companies with a load of debt. We've gone from thinking about who's going to struggle in a higher rate environment when they're either mortgages for individuals or bonds roll off for companies and they have to renew them again at higher rates. If there is a cut in these and they have an improving credit rating, Rolls-Royce might be in a position to try and get a bit more free cash out of their uh, money that's coming in at the at the top end. Um, so none of this is massively complicated. It's not based on any kind of huge uh, deep insight into the, the company. So the real question is, is it priced in? Uh, and the answer, according to the B of A guys, is no. Um, and I think they have a sort of fairish point here. So they're a, a kind of industrials manufacturing company and they compare them to Safran over in France, which trades at 21 times earnings. MTU in Germany trades at 22. Rolls-Royce, even after its most recent run, trades at about 15 times earnings. So they're at a 30% discount in terms of multiple to, oh, sorry, they're 30% up uh, to their kind of nearest competitors, which kind of tells you that I'm not sure they're being priced under uh, there in a certain way. And I suppose the bigger reason, and if you don't like these things, which, by the way, I'm not a massive fan uh, of that line of thinking, because I think it's perfectly possible that you might be in an industry that's in general overpriced and looking cheap in an industry that's in general overpriced doesn't make you cheap. It just means you're not egregiously overpriced. But anyway, um, here's the kind of big numbers that stick out. Rolls-Royce are projecting out free cash flow uh, to grow. They're talking about it growing in 2027 to 3.1 billion, and that's pounds. Thing has a market cap at the moment of 25 billion. If they get anywhere near that 3.1 when 2025 comes around, that will be that will be quite a bit of a return. I don't think the share price will stay where it is if they get to uh, 3.1 billion. They won't have a market cap of 25. Will they get there? That's a good question. Um, they have a new CEO who I have stoically avoided mentioning so far. Um, interestingly, they, his name is Tufan Ergen Belgrich, by the way. I've spent all last year working out how to pronounce that name. Uh, I understood when he was uh, an operator at BP beforehand, people used to call him Tufan Turbofan because of like how hard he works and how industrious he is. And he's um, 
gone in there and started shouting at quite a lot of people at Rolls Royce, uh, which is so far, so far, getting results. Um, reasons for thinking it might not in future include the following. Uh, he is pissing everybody off that is his customers. Um, so Emirates uh, are complaining about price increases. Thai Airlines have switched away from Rolls-Royce engines as a result of price increases. So those things that are boosting free cash flow quite nicely are also winding up customers. Huh, fun fact that it turns out that raising prices make customers cross. Who'd have thought? Um, in the case of Rolls-Royce, they have a bit of a moat, um, at least according to Morningstar anyway, and I think I sort of agree. They're not the only engine manufacturer in the world. Uh, General Electric is, remember them. And uh, that's where Thai Airlines has been going. And the reason I mentioned Thai is they've been a Rolls-Royce customer for a very, very long time. Uh, but they are balking at price increases. And uh, Emirates CEO, or sorry, President, rather, is a uh, post there. They've suggested that Rolls-Royce need to improve the durability on their engines. For those that have been following Rolls-Royce since before the pandemic, or those like me who weren't following them before then, but went back and looked, Durability is a bit of a recurring theme with um, Rolls-Royce. It's easy to think their share price went off a cliff because flying hours stopped. And that's partly true, but they were having issues concerning um, turbine blade durability even beforehand. The Trent 1000 had uh, blades that were cracking, basically. Uh, and durability is a real kind of concern here. So Emirates have been saying, never mind the price increases. How about you make some better products, uh, basically? Over and above that, they might well get slowed down by a, down, a recession if air travel slows down, especially long-haul air travel, which is, if you think back to last week, the sector that I uh, or the part of that industry that I am more concerned about than kind of short-haul uh, internal Europe stuff. That's where their big revenue comes from. Um, if that turns down this year, I would expect cash flows to come down and servicing revenues to come down, and maybe we, maybe we don't get to... Um, that 3.1 as quickly as we're hoping in 2027. Uh, so that's a possibility. That said, I mean, even if you only get to two and a half and not 3.1, um, there's still kind of, uh, it still looks fairly cheap with a market cap of 25. So Rolls-Royce is up a lot. Um, and looping back to the Morgan Housel thing uh, for a moment then, I'm going to be entirely upfront here and say that I'm psychologically not capable of buying this stock at these prices. Even if I make a case here, which says that I think I think I probably ought to, uh, to be honest, I I can see I wouldn't blame anyone who did. I would say well done for getting past the kind of anchoring bias that I have. But having seen this thing at oh I don't know about fifteen percent of its current price or something like that, a bit more perhaps, I find it just too difficult uh, to go buying from here. Steve Rolls Royce, uh, a stock we have stoically ignored for as long as we've been on the air, even though it's the thing I suspect a lot of our listeners would love us to talk about. Um, do you have any thoughts here? Yeah, I, I think you're probably mostly right on that, Steve. I think um, I think investors are probably looking at this one and saying, look, it's what, three something, and it used to be nearly a thousand. So they're, they're in danger here of thinking, you know, line still has plenty of room to go up. But Rolls-Royce has done quite a lot um, uh, a lot of damage to itself uh, in that pandemic. And it had to do a lot of damage to itself. Sorry, it didn't do it because it just fancied doing it. It, it, it did it because uh, it needed to survive. So it was it was flogging off assets. It was uh, it was sacking people. It was making reductions wherever it could. Uh, you know, it basically went into survival mode because it had no real alternative. Um, so, yeah, this is not the same 900 pence business or 1,000 pence business that, that it was pre-pandemic. Uh, this is a different kind of business. So where it actually ends up falling and being fair is is different. So I, I you know I would encourage people just not to you know not to think there's room for for the line to move a bit. But um, I must admit it's been a surprise winner this year. They, they do say that stocks often go up uh, go up the stairs but come down the elevator. Um, but this uh, this company has uh, pretty much gone up the elevator, Steve. This year it's up two hundred and something percent. Uh, one of the best performing stocks in the well, one of the best performing stock in the FTSE, but not quite on the UK market, if I remember correctly. Um, but yeah, in, in incredible turnaround in, in sentiment in such a, a short period of time. Um, uh, it, it's particularly interesting to me. I, it's not a stock I'll buy. I think it's so far outside of my circle of competence. Um, uh, I, I just, I don't think I would be able to, to to buy this with any kind of seriousness, but. 
Um, f- fair play to the Rolls Royce people who have bought it. They must be up about six, seven hundred percent off the off the uh, uh, at least the weekly chart for the bottom. So it's uh, it's come back, um, and for some people, will have been a roaring success. Yeah, uh, this has been strong stuff. For, um, people, no complaints there. So um, I suspect I'm a bit more optimistic than you are on Rolls Royce, Steve. But if you think uh, Rolls Royce isn't the place to be looking in in 2024, we had someone ask us where we think is the places to be, I guess, looking in 2024. And it's a good question because the market's in an interesting place. But why don't you kick us off with your thoughts on um, where buying opportunities are either at the moment or this year? Yeah, so this was an interesting one. So this came from Steve W84. And he just said that given that a lot of large cap stocks like Alphabet, Amazon, ASML look fairly priced as of now, where do we think the buying opportunities are as we go into 2024? And my initial reaction to that question was, I'm not really sure. I'll have to go and have a look around and and see what I can find out. So I did a bit of digging, Steve, uh, last night, and I basically found the sort of five sectors that analysts and banks are uh, recommending uh, or optimistic about this year. So I'll, I'll just go through these five and then um, I'll pass to you, Steve, and then I'll give you my thoughts afterwards. So uh, number one on the list was IT, which as a sector returned 56.4% last year. Um, the firms that I saw that were optimistic about the sector were um, BMO, um, Goldman Sachs, RBC Capital Markets, Societe Generale from French, uh, from French, from France, uh, Truist and UBS, uh, and there was only one firm that I could find that was pessimistic about the sector, Steve, and that was Bank of America. Um, the thesis was pretty much technology is a high quality sector; it has strong earnings growth. That's quite a defensive tilt, which is appealing in an uncertain econ- uh, economy, and that generally everybody is bullish, providing that the valuations can can hold up. So. IT was number one on the list. Um, maybe that's one of the ones I could agree with. The second one, Steve, I'm still scratching my head a little bit about, but it's energy. Uh, in 2023, the return was minus 4.8% across the sector. Uh, the firms that are optimistic about the sector are B of A, uh, Goldman Sachs, JP Morgan, RBC, and Stifle. Um, firms pessimistic about the sector was BMO Capital Markets and the consensus thesis essentially is that uh, oil's at a decent price energy is cheap uh, and they think oil um, is going to get more expensive so if that happens energy is usually a surefire winner um, but not so sure about that one number three on the list this one might jump out at you Steve financials uh, 2023 return was just under 10% Firms that are optimistic about the sector are uh, Bank of America, BMO Capital, uh, Deutsche Bank, and Stifle. Uh, There was actually no firms that were pessimistic about the sector. And uh, basically the same idea as energy, really, that financials are historically inexpensive. And they think that the biggest sort of challenges for the financial sector are probably in the rearview mirror. So uh, that is obviously referring to the regional bank collapses of last year. Uh, fourth on the list, uh, this one is a shocker for me, was communication services. Um, it's including Google in this, I think, Steve. I think that's what sector Google seems to fall into uh, because it's including its 2023 return as 54.4%. Uh, the firms that were optimistic about the sector are RBC Capital Markets, Society General, and Truist. And there's nobody pessimistic about the sector. And the thesis from them all was pretty much saying that it's a top beneficiary from low interest rates and bond yields because the valuations aren't that stretched. Uh, the last one on the list um, was healthcare, which returned 0.3% last year. Uh, the firms that are optimistic are Goldman Sachs, JP Morgan, Morgan Stanley, Society General, UBS, Wells Fargo. And uh, the pessimistic about the sector is Bank of America, Deutsche Bank and Truist. And the general thesis that it's a top choice for uh, investors because it's it offers decent quality growth, but it's also defensive. and. Um, the only sort of major worry across everybody was that the government is kind of sticking its oar in uh, and uh, messing around with drug prices and their ability to set their own prices, and that that's the that was the major headwind. But they were the five, Steve. Um, so just to run through them again, just to make sure everybody's got them, it's uh, it's IT, uh, energy, financials, communication services, 
and healthcare. Uh, any of those, Steve, top of your list to buy this year? Uh, no, um, to be honest, but uh, I, I'm not super clear on what I think is top of my list sector-wise. I was trying to work out what's missing then. So missing most likely is um, REITs, defensives and staples basically is what we're missing there arguably mining as well but if you think of oil companies as sort of commodities companies then there's perhaps a little bit of uh something kind of uh going forward there you were reading out the names of people that are positive and negative on various things and as you were reading them after the second one uh, energy i thought goldman's never seen a stock or a sector it didn't like uh or wasn't willing to try and uh, make a bull case for have they i mean maybe they think better certain names within certain areas are, are more and less worth looking at and that's probably fair enough but they tend to think there's a tailwind behind behind most things um communications i think you're right they are thinking of google and meta uh, and so on and and that might be uh true that there's there's good stuff coming down the the tracks this year for these guys if you think about the kind of tech sector, my initial reaction was that, yeah, look, sometimes stocks go up because people run into them in fear. Uh, and that there may be some of that, to be honest, from last year. Uh, we the, the, S&P in, the S&P as a whole went up a lot and its top end went up a lot, but the vast majority of its stocks did not. Uh, the vast majority of its things struggled quite a bit, uh, but it was driven higher by uh, having a high concentration in big tech. And last year was a good year for big tech. That might be partly people running there in fear, but it might also be that um, Amazon and I know Amazon's a uh, cyclical to, uh, in theory, and Google and Apple and Microsoft and Nvidia, and to an extent, have found a durable way to win and to make more and more money, and they use their size as an advantage. And while people like Scott Galloway think the world would be better if we had more aggressive antitrust policies, I I don't agree with that, and for the time being, we don't. Uh, so there's uh, Goldman's job isn't to kind of, or anyone's job here isn't to try and figure out how things should be. It's to uh, make sense of how they are. I, I mean, I own lots of stuff in financials, so it'd be nice if they went higher. Is this particularly the year for that? I'm not really sure. Uh, I don't have a strong view that the thing is going to unlock this year. But I have a, I'm more confident. I think that it's quite nicely priced. The stuff that I own, where I've been, where I've been buying it. I mean, I've seen towards the end of last year. A lot of the banks that I was quite far in the red on coming back to pretty close to level. Um, top sector picks for you, Steve. Do you do you think about things in this way, or do you uh, tend to think more more stock specific? Not really thinking about it like this, but if I was to pick a sector, uh, I would sort of have to caveat it as well. So I am uh, basically I've been looking at the REIT market over the last sort of six months, and the, the ended up with four what I think is really high quality REITs have quite concentrated positions as well. So roughly sort of like 15 to 20% of my portfolio is in REITs at the moment. And I think they're in a very good position to, um, to do very well this year. Now there's a couple of reasons, a couple of caveats that I want to just sort of put out there. There's about $1.3 trillion, um, dollars, a, a tranche of debt that's, um, basically needing refinancing this year, uh, from the real estate market. And there are going to be a lot of companies, smaller one, smaller REITs, less, less, you know, B tier REITs, let's call them, that are going to struggle to refinance um, that debt um, at favourable rates, or some some companies may struggle to refinance that debt at all. So, if you have a REIT that has a good shelf of debt coming, and you look at that balance sheet, and you think about that REIT that perhaps this isn't an a, you know a high quality REIT, then that's not something that I would consider buying right now. I think that's a that's a quite a risky move. But the A tier REITs, uh, um, the, the the top the top of the pack of REITs, I don't think they're going to have any trouble refinancing debt, and they also have the liquidity to uh, avoid that being a massive issue so if i was going to pick um a sector it would be scrap the office reits i'm i'm still not particularly happy with buying uh, um an, an office reit unless you feel like you've got a really high quality one uh, i would be focusing on the other reits the a tier other reits uh the high quality other reits uh the ones that you think that could weather um you know just just in case the rates don't come down at a, a particularly high speed because you're thinking about real estate debt is essentially being rolled over from three percent to probably near eight percent 
and that's a massive difference in terms of repayments and and uh, that affecting liquidity and things like that for real estate uh, companies. So uh, and they're not going to be able to increase the rent by that much. So I would. I would just stay away from the crap stuff, you know, your medical properties trusts and things like that. They're they're just not a risk worth bearing. Um, I would stick to the good quality stuff. Uh, the 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 prologists of this world, the American towers, the crown castles, the um, maybe the realty incomes. I guess I could include that in there. They're, they're high quality proven operators. Uh, they're probably where I see the most money this year. You beat me to it with Medical Properties Trust. I was going to say, not so you would stick to the hospital operating REITs uh, then in that case. Um, yeah, they've had a difficult week. They've had a difficult while, actually, in fairness, Medical Properties Trust. But I think their issues are, um, they're not helped by the macro environment, but I think they're quite significantly to do with that company uh, in a certain um, kind of way. It looks like they're uh, getting into all kinds of entanglements with um, Steward, which I, I don't desire to look at especially closely. If anyone would really like us to look at Medical Properties um, Trust, then then do let us know, um, and, and we'll be happy to uh, give you our thoughts on it by having a closer look. I've been staying well away for the moment because it looks to me like something for other people uh, to concern themselves with. In terms of... I currently think in terms of a sector or an industry, no one's bullish on staples. Um, no one's ever bullish on staples, by the way, unless they think there's a massive crash coming. And that kind of makes me think that's worth looking at in a certain way. So we've been seeing across both the UK and the US stuff coming down at a quite a significant rate. And it's been pushing back with the general rally towards the end of last year. But I still wonder whether there are certain kind of headwinds that are are being overlooked here. It's fairly obvious where the shiny things are, I think, around the stock market at the moment. There's good shiny stuff in uh, AI and anything to do with AI. <clears throat> There's good shiny stuff to do with GLP-1 inhibiting drugs, uh, which is weight loss drugs, so the likes of Novo and Eli Lilly and so on. Um, and there's not a huge amount anywhere else. Um, energy is an interesting pick uh, for that reason. I mean, it looks to me like there's um, quite significant uh, enthusiasm around those other things. And I wonder whether in a lot of cases, uh, whether it's elsewhere in the healthcare sector or in the food, uh, basically, sector, people are overestimating the effect of these GLP-1 things. I've talked about this a little bit before, uh, based on what I heard from the business breakdowns podcast but it looks to me like there's there might be opportunity in staples if you can think carefully about them both uk sided and us sided i'll maybe talk about one next week and i'll make a note to to write down some thoughts on this but i think that's kind of where i'd be looking uh, at the moment looking with my my value oriented hat on in a world that doesn't seem to be containing huge amounts of general level value there's specific names i think that look interesting to me rather than broad sectors just just on that as well, it was on the Streetwise podcast either last week or the week before that it, um, people, um, the, the research update has been pretty much updated on that and they now think that people um, on these weight loss drugs are going to give up their sweet snacks rather than the salty snacks. So if you have an operator mm-hmm. who is, you know, like KP Nuts or whatever, making salted peanuts, they, they're going to be less affected by the likes of um, uh, this weight loss drug than, than somebody like a Cadbury's or... Uh, or, or a Mondelez or, uh, or whoever. So um, yeah. it was just an, uh, a really interesting little point that was brought up on Streetwise the other week. So uh, I think it was uh, they were talking about Uts, U-T-Z, uh, as being one that they, they quite like because they had a, quite a decent salty snack portfolio. And PepsiCo, obviously, as well, who have a, a decent mm. uh, salty snack portfolio with their Lay's uh, brand of, uh, or Lay's offering. So yeah, interesting. Um, potentially an opportunity um, there if you can get um, PepsiCo at the right valuation, Steve. I think it's one of those fantastic businesses that I've that I have owned at one point, but I've never really held on to. Yeah, similar. A um, lot of people kind of bullish on on Pepsi for this year when I hear about it. The other thing that didn't come out in your list that I've heard from a couple of anecdotal things is gold. Um, people think the environment's setting up nicely for gold and gold mining and gold producing um companies and in fairness when i look at them and i look for stocks that are kind of fairly well down i i get uh uh newmont pretty well it was on that uh one of the similar uh, maybe the same barons uh streetwise podcast that they mentioned barrack as a gold as a gold producer to um 
buy and they were suggesting that to be honest you could have picked Newmont they wouldn't really kind of uh, quarrel much which way you went on those two Barrick I think tends to be a bit cheaper and a bit more unstable um, Newmont tends to be the opposite of those basically you choose uh, which one whether you think that's worth it in my case I'm not sure I can choose whether I think it's worth it particularly accurately Newmont would be the one I'd more likely go for I think because gold mining isn't my strong suit especially when you get into understanding things about different grades and so on um but uh i guess that's the other sector that i've heard talked about as interesting though i i become increasingly dubious of my uh as i get kind of older and spend more time investing i become more and more pessimistic that my circle of competence is shrinking and i'm okay with that um it might just be that i'm realizing where the edge of that competence level is right and i but and i think it's okay to step outside your circle of competence but i think the margin of safety you need when you get outside your circle of competence or the further you get outside your circle of competence, you need a bigger and bigger and bigger uh, margin of safety, right? I think you can get away with buying most anything as long as it's cheap enough, but it would need to be incredibly cheap uh, in some cases. And yeah, Newmont isn't that. Um, I'm not saying that would need to be in, in penny stock territory for me to get interested there, but it's probably a bit higher than I think I can make up for with my own circle of competence shortcomings, put it that way. Yeah, I think that's an interesting little thought experiment that Steve to think about maybe for the future is what exactly is your circle of competence? Um, mm. I think there's a few things that you can sort of gloss over and go, yeah, yeah, I think this is in my wheelhouse. And then like a couple of weeks down the line, you'll think, so actually, do I actually understand anything about this at uh, this sector? Or, you know, do I uh, have a sort of like, I guess that again, just goes back to our own delusions, doesn't it? I guess it circles back to the Morgan Housel point um, of, of knowing your own delusions. Um, so yeah, maybe that's a little thought experiment for the year and for baby people uh, who are listening in just to have a think about, you know, write down exactly what is your circle of competence maybe and uh, and just seeing how broad or narrow it really is and uh, and then maybe compare that to your portfolio and say you know do all the stocks in here actually fit quite comfortably inside that circle of competence and i think again i don't think it's a hard and fast like on off switch a circle of competence i think there's it's it's like uh it's like a spectrum so um you know there are the things that you say look, look i'm 100 percent confident i understand how uh, say Amazon makes his money or something like that, but you could have like oh, I'm eighty percent. I'm eighty. I'm, you know, I'm because Amazon's got a hell of a lot of things going on. So you could be eighty percent confident that you know how eighty percent of the business works, but maybe you're not too sure about how the uh, AWS side works or what or whatever or the or part of the AWS store or um you know the 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 sort of family of apps that they develop to 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 promote aws and i think that's that's kind of fine as well so yeah it might be an interesting thing for people to do at home or maybe people to have a uh you know drop drop in the comment section what you think your circle of competence is and uh whether you stick to it uh rigidly or whether you just just splash the cash around yeah uh that'd be good to know actually it'll be interesting to think about that a little bit more maybe we could shuffle on then to something that uh we were asked about and people like asking us questions that are not within our circle of competence or at least not obviously in the center of our circle of competence but if you want our views you can have them um so let's talk about wix uh then for a moment not the wix that we've talked about before on this show the one that makes like internet websites and so, as opposed to non-internet websites but anyway that makes um Websites, the one that owns and operates a bunch of kind of DIY warehouses in the UK. They have about 233 of these things, I think, stashed around the country somewhere or another. And you can go and buy tools and equipment and materials and stuff for building a shed. Uh, and I think a bit of garden stuff as, uh, in terms of plants and so on as well. But anyway, you know the kinds of things, a bit like a B&Q uh, and so on. Um, and it's a stock that's been catching the attention of some people because when you run it through, a, I don't know, a five or an eight or a nine or whatever pillars screener, it comes up looking quite nice. Um, uh, and, and that's not nothing. Those are important things that they um, talk about here. So the other thing about to notice about it is it has a massive dividend yield, uh, which is about seven, just under eight uh, percent from what I can see of it. Uh, they dividended about, uh, at today's prices anyway, um, correct at the time of recording. They dividended out about 11p last year. And from what I can see of it, they're going to make about eight in earnings. So I'm not sure that has terribly long to live, that dividend. But um, it could be so cheap that it's not worth worrying about that too much. Even if a dividend comes off a bit, you might still do very nicely with this. They had a big buyback as well, I think, which was roughly the size of the dividend again. Right. So that's we're getting into uh, serious, serious territory here with a market cap of 356 million, 25 million in buybacks, 20 more in dividends. And, and we're talking, you know, quite substantial double digit returns um, here. 
can see why it would do well through one of these. Uh, we were asked about this by a guy called Hadjian Thomas, I think 7117. Um, I think he's asked us questions before and they tend to be pretty good. Uh, and I liked the way he put his question as well. So um, I'm happy to have a tell you what I found after a little look uh, just around. He said that some social media types that he's not a fan of uh, like this very much, but nonetheless, um, he does a better job than me. I assume that Hadjian Thomas is a uh, he. Um, Apologies if not, but he or she does a better I'm job. Sure, we do this uh, to him every time. <clears throat> uh, great. Um, well, in that case, he or she every time um, uh, talks about this in a way that I quite like because I think a thing that I've been thinking of fairly recently is that it is possible to like good stocks for bad reasons. Uh, basically, it's very possible to have a pretty thin analysis on um, Apple or Amazon or Alphabet or any of those things and say, yeah, look, I like them because I Google a lot of stuff or something. That's not an investment thesis. Does that mean, though, that Alphabet is not a good investment? No, it doesn't. Possible to find, uh, yeah, good good things to buy without um, uh, having done much research into them. And stocks don't behave better because you spent more time looking at them uh, is a, a nice feature to keep in mind as well. So, okay, giving us a kind of slightly closer look, I'm not saying I'm a great expert on on uh, this, and I'm not actually sure where my nearest Wix is, which is possibly significant. Um, I thought I would try comparing this to some other nearby similar uh, companies and work out if anything really jumped out at me, because when you run it through your pillar screener, it doesn't tell you much about what else is going on uh, kind of anywhere else in this industry. So... Um, what we have was I tried comparing this to Kingfisher, Tops Tiles and Victorian Plumbing because they're suppliers of DIY or uh, home improvement stuff. And I thought I'd see what I could find. Um, there was one thing that jumped out at me, but I thought when uh, I'd mentioned something else just slightly beforehand, here's uh, the thing with retailers like this. One of the things you want quite a lot to see, uh, or one of the things I always like to look at when I think about retailers is... What I loosely call inventory turnover, I think I'm not strictly reading the right numbers for inventory turnover, so don't um, necessarily uh, uh, quote me on this one. And there are definitely a few ways of working out the same metric, not all of which are equivalent. But what you want to know, I think, is what makes a better retailer? Well, it's one that can get its stuff out the door. Um, retailers don't want stuff sitting on shelves or in back rooms. They're taking up space that other things could be taken up, or they cost money uh, to keep in storage, which is... Um, a bit of a, which is an issue, right? So you want people who are better at getting stuff off the shelves and getting more stuff back onto the shelves. And the way you can measure this is by looking at how much inventory a company has and working out how many times it's selling all of that inventory in a year. So uh, officially, I think you're supposed to look at average inventory, which um, I did as uh, inventory at the start, inventory at the end, and divide it by two. So add them together and, and halve it, basically, to get yourself to an average for their inventory through the year. That's not accurate, but... Uh, it might be close enough uh, on this occasion. Um, and then compare that to sales. So work out how many times um, that sales number fits into the average inventory number, such as you uh, worked it out here. And that'll tell you roughly, again, pretty roughly, pretty rule of thumb stuff. And you might want to look into it if you get a really weird looking number, which I didn't uh, in any of these things, uh, get uh, an idea for how often and how quickly they shove stuff out the door. Um, so how well they kind of manage their inventory. And Wix, spoiler alert, fares pretty much as well as anyone in this. I had them between eight and nine over the last couple of years, times they turn over their entire stock, at least or equivalent thereof. Um, Kingfisher was sort of between four and a half and five times. Um, Tops was seven times and Victorian Plumbing was eight times. So this is all pretty much in the right kind of ballpark the reason i mention it isn't because it sets wicks apart or behind on these things but it's something that maybe um you don't get if you just look at the same metrics for whatever company you're uh considering here so uh since the people on social media that i think both uh hayden thomas and i and are talking about um or pay attention to like uh sticking things into spreadsheets and numbers there's a metric you could stick into your spreadsheets and numbers next time you're looking at a retail company that i uh thought i'd have a look at so here's a number that does stand out to me. I mentioned earlier that Rolls-Royce was sending out quite a lot of its um, money paying interest on its debt. Uh, and that didn't go over terribly well with me. Uh, and it's a number that I do look at for pretty much any uh, business, less so with banks, maybe, because that's a slightly different. Uh, there you look to compare that to something else. But how much of your operating income is going out the door paying interest on debt, not paying down debt is a 
is a thing I like to kind of look at quite a bit here. And Victorian Plumbing here fares pretty well, by the way. It's paying nearly nothing. It has almost no debt. Uh, I don't like the company very much from having used them, but uh, they're they're decent in um, in terms of kind of interest coverage here. Uh, Top Styles is at forty two percent, which is quite high. Uh, that's a lot of your um, operating income to be sending out just servicing debt. Kingfisher down at twenty two. Um, the bigger issue though was Wix, which is a kind of just over half from what I could see of it. Uh, it looked like sort of all, about fifty percent or more of the the money they make in terms of uh, pre-tax earnings goes kind of out the way on paying interest on stuff, which is uh, that was the kind of issue I I sort of saw here. Hayden said um, he thought the debt was mostly kind of lease agreements, so there's not a big problem there. I think I probably the only place I kind of differ from you there is thinking. I don't know. I'm not convinced by this um, debt situation. It looks to me like quite a lot of what we make goes out on debt with Wix, and that gives me a pause here. Aside from that, in fairly general terms, I think it looks mainly fine. I don't massively like the business in terms of thinking, I don't know whether I'm the kind of customer or the kind of main person they aim for as a customer, but I wouldn't hunt out a Wix particularly. I don't see any reason why I would go back there rather than, uh, or go there rather than my nearest home base or B&Q or wherever else. Um, overall, yeah, I can see there's, there's stuff to like about Wix. It certainly looks cheap uh, at today's prices. I'm sort of a little bit wary about this company from a from a moat perspective. I'm not sure quite what I think uh, this company's moat is supposed to be. Um, maybe it doesn't need one uh, if it's cheap enough, right? But um, I'm not convinced I see switching cost is very high from Wix, even with a kind of, don't know whether they have a loyalty card system or not, but I, I'm not sure I'm their customer. But I don't go hunting out the nearest Wix rather than the nearest B&Q or Homebase or anything like that. So I guess they look kind of, um, and nothing about their kind of numbers indicates to me that they particularly do have much of a moat. They don't appear to manage sort of massively better margins than their competition or, or turn over particularly quickly or anything like that. So, um, Steve, any thoughts on Wix? So Wix is a really strange company to me. So um, I don't know if you've seen um, the Inside special by Bo Burnham, but he has one of his songs in there. He basically has a... a uh, a, a line in one of the songs which is like um it's it's basically bugles take on race and he's he's he's, at, he's basically trying to sort of like argue the point of why do we really care what a supermarket thinks about this or what a supermarket thinks about that and wix is one of those companies that randomly has this kind of uh a massive support for lgbt which seems strange for a a store which is essentially selling fencing and uh, uh and wood and things like that and diy but it, the uh the ceo has really sort of entrenched himself in 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 that debate which i, I for whatever reason he basically called anybody who doesn't support it bigots but he's kind of dealing with a an old hat kind of industry of people who just don't even want to think about things like that and i suppose that it is good that he is bringing that up and making people think about it but it kind of feels to me like it's one of those unnecessary battles for wicks to have just waded into uh, uh basically um yeah just to have waded in to try and change the hearts and minds of people uh, and supporting uh what he calls his lgbt colleagues um, so yeah, really interesting thing. I mean, boycott weeks was coming off the back of it by people who disagree with the communist stance. I'm, I'm, I think that's a little bit, a little bit harsh, but it feels like one of those, like, PR nightmare kind of scenarios where you, your person in charge of your public relations is just at one point is going to sit back and say to the CEO, "Why, why are we?" Why are we in this battle? I understand why perhaps he might want to be in the battle himself, but why is Wix in the battle? Um, and I think that's another sort of risk to add to it is that this uh, Fraser, uh, Fraser Longdon just seems to want to sort of entrench Wix in an LGB de debate, which really has no bearing on the company's um, brand, no bearing on the company's products. I don't fully understand why he feels that Wix should should be in this battle at all. Um, Steve, do you have anything on that before we shuffle on, or is that a risk you think that is maybe overblown, or or, or what? It makes no sense to me. Um, if you want to go and engage yourself in these kinds of things using your company, you better think your company is in a pretty strong position, uh, and clearly the place that people are going to go, regardless, no one is going to be um, deterred from this kind of thing. And it's not obvious to me Wix is in that position. 
The other thing uh, about getting into this that makes no sense to me is that I've seen controversial PR before. I've seen it from the likes of Michael O'Leary. I've seen it from the likes of Tim Martin. And you can make what you like of it. That's why it's controversial. But in each of their cases, I can understand why they're saying the things they're saying. I can understand why Tim Martin is complaining about Brexit. I can understand why Michael O'Leary is busy uh, doing ridiculous PR ads, at least in days gone by. It's because they're trying to find a way to communicate to you we are fanatically low priced. Um, I don't want overweight people on my aircraft, says Michael O'Leary, because they make it more expensive for everybody else. And I want to keep people prices down. OK, um, that's you can think that's good, bad or otherwise PR. Um, but the message is clear enough. I want to make things cheap. This doesn't make things cheap. I don't want these things. What the things that Wix has to do with anything, uh, either in terms of well, anything that customers might really care about is kind of beyond me uh here i'm not sure they're either in a strong enough position to be alienating people or uh that this serves a kind of broader pr purpose um here if there is i can't see it which probably limits it a little bit so yeah i think i come down on your side of thinking this is a, a strange and kind of risky business uh to be in but um one more uh one more question steve yeah, we do. It was just a quick one, really. It was just dropped onto our, uh, one of our latest Spotify episodes by Tony, and he just put that your chat and insights have really helped. Um, can you please explain why the impact on FX on US holdings varies wildly on trading 2 and 2? Some of his are in the 2% range. Craft Times is at 0.33, and Coke is at 4.73. Thanks, Tony. So, Tony, this isn't uh, a charge that trading two on two are putting on you uh this is just a fluctuation in the currency market so when you're trading in the u.s stock you're trading in two things essentially so you're trading in the stock and you're trading in the difference between your home currency and the dollar uh, at that point as well so if you think that the, the stock price can go up and down and also the the the, the strength of the dollar versus the pound or the euro, whichever you're trading in, can also go up and down as well. So the best way I've found to think about this, if you're you know, somebody who's who's relatively new to uh, FX problems, is to think about when you go on holiday. So forget about stocks completely and just think about when you when when you go to, you know, from the UK into Greece or something like that. And before you go into Greece, you need to get yourself some euros. So you, you go to the shop and you'll see that the rate on euros is whatever, 1.2 euros to the pound or whatever it is. And you exchange it. And then you have uh, whatever, you know, 120 euros for every 100 pound you exchange. When you come back from Greece, though, you need to change those euros that you've got spare back into pounds. They're now might be 118 so for every 100 uh, pounds that you put in you're only going to get 118 back so nothing has really changed there except that the strength of the two currencies has varied slightly so where you was getting 120 before you're only getting 118 now so if you change them back there'll be a little shortfall in the price and that essentially all you're doing is then adding a layer of stock on top of that so if you think about your FX as essentially all you've done is change pounds for dollars that's how that section of that trade is doing so, you know, in your case, they're, they're down a little bit. So uh, the dollar has um, strengthened against the pound. And then when you look at the stocks, then you've got your stock performance on top of it. So currency performance is FX, stock performance is the return above it. And then what trading two, two and two essentially does is added them together for you to get a total return. Uh, uh, and that's all that is. Steve, anything on that or shall we wrap her up? Uh, not much to add on that. I mean, like you, I buy some US things and I sort of notice that the the pound against the dollar moves and whichever way it moves, it never seems to move in the right direction for me. I think at the stage that I'm at at the moment, I should want, um, the pound to climb against the dollar. It would be, but basically it's better for buying stuff in US dollars. Uh, if you have a stronger pound and it's better for earning things that are already in US dollars, i.e. if you're looking to sell or if you're looking to get cash out. So companies that earn in dollars and you're going to take it out in pounds, either through a dividend or some other method. Uh, if the pound goes down, I think I'm probably less than halfway through my buying and I should therefore want the pound to climb, even though it means that the returns I'll get from the things I have are, are lower. I mean, if you're a realty income shareholder, you'll have noticed your dividend, even if you reinvest, by the way, you'll have noticed your dividend going up and down over the last few uh, months. It's not because payments have gone down in any way. That's just because uh, FX has been taking the bite out of them in places, and that's pretty much all there is to it. Fortunately, um, stocks, especially US ones, tend to be much, much, much more volatile than uh, currencies. So it's unlikely that uh, you will see over the long term a significant um, 
swing uh, against uh, eroding your kind of gains by FX. It's why when people trade uh, FX, they leverage much more heavily than they do when they trade stocks because um, you need that kind of leverage to get any kind of meaningful shift. But uh, no, pretty much your description's accurate there, I think, Steve. Should we call it there? Yeah, just before we do, Steve, um, just one of the things that we, we it's probably best that we point out is that if you've got a red FX position of five percent and a red FX position, uh, a red stock position of five percent, when you buy more of that stock, uh, or if you buy more of that stock, you'll average down both the FX position and you'll average down the stock position as well. So it's like a two pronged assault of uh, of bringing down bringing down prices. So uh, just one of those key things to note that people don't often think about. But yeah, Steve, wrap us up. Cool. Well, that was our show. Welcome to 2024, everybody. Um, we'll be back next week with, uh, I think, some more of your questions and maybe some more stocks that we're looking at as well. Very much a UK-themed uh, week this week. We'll see what next week brings. But for now, bye from us.